My youngest sister-in-law came home from college for the summer. At that time, my wife and I were newly married, and we had a very large young adult group we were ministering to. And so she spent that summer spending time with all of us together as a big, large friend group. On the periphery of that group, there was a young man who is incredibly talented musically. He was incredibly hilarious, could tell a joke, had a lightness about him, a deep and cutting sarcasm. He could be fun to be around. He also was a chain smoker with no real prospects in his life. He wasn't devoted to anything really, at least in that time. Sort of a drift, a drift in a delayed sense of adolescence. Have you ever seen that? The only thing that caught his attention that summer was my sister-in-law. And they started up a little summertime romance of just, you know, flirtation, maybe spending time at coffee shops, a couple dates here or there. And I remember talking to one of my best friends. You see, my closest friends lived 50 steps from our front doorstep to theirs. They were all part of the ministry. And this young man lived there because he was friends with a friend of mine. And I remember mentioning to our shared friend how I was not too thrilled that he was paying attention to my sister-in-law. I think I said, I will not have him as a brother-in-law. You know, I don't know why I think I can assert myself like that. I certainly was protective of her. I wanted her to have a man who had his act together, had direction in life. I also wanted her to be with somebody of great faith. You know, not, not only was I her older brother-in-law, but at one point in time, I was her youth pastor. So I had this protective spirit about me. Well, she went off down to Peru on a trip or something through college, and she came back. And apparently, the entire time she was gone, she didn't respond to his texts and emails. The kids call this ghosting today. He was ghosted by her. When she came back, she would reply, yeah, let's get together. But it was always very cool. What had once ran hot was now really cool. And he began to get scared and nervous and he overthought it. And next thing you know, he's panicky because this girl, he really, 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 really wants to like him, doesn't show signs of liking him. Yes. That's all I thought. I will not have him as a brother-in-law. Score one for the good guys. Well, one night, my buddy is sitting out on the front porch with his friend, and I decided to go out there and join him. Colleen went to bed early, and I sat down, and he lit up one of his cigarettes, and he started complaining, and he said, I'm done, that's it, I give up. And my response was, Pfft. sort of scoff, you know. Again, I don't know why I do this. Sometimes I just open my mouth when I shouldn't. Pfft. And he says, what? What do you got to say? Oh, God. All right. If you give up now, you're going to prove to her that you're not the kind of quality of a man that she rightly deserves. You're going to prove to her that you never really cared about her that much in the first place. And just like that, like I do, I was giving gold for free. And I didn't know why. Some better angel of me said, be nice to the young man. So I started trying to be nice. 
And I found myself quoting something I heard my father-in-law say a lot. In fact, it's something of a family motto. It's a, it's a phrase that he took from somewhere and he adjusted it to fit his life. Here's that phrase. I looked at him, this young man, and I re just recalled my father-in-law's commentary. The faint of heart never won a fickle maiden. The faint of heart never won a fickle maiden. You see, to win my mother-in-law, my father-in-law was persistent, and he stayed the course, and he was funny, and he made her laugh. And every time she kind of turned away, he made her laugh some more. He kept trying. To eventually win over my sister-in-law, another man who is now my brother-in-law, who I'm very pleased is my brother-in-law, he actually went to all the great lengths and efforts to write her handwritten notes and letters from across the state. It was all really romantic in those courtship days, writing these little notes and using stationery and learning how to write beautifully. Oh, it was persistent. It was intentional. It was focused. It was unique. And I won her over. And, and yes, even my, my wife could have been accused at one time or another for being fickle, but I'm not faint of heart. I won't tell you my ways, but they worked. And so here I told this young man, the faint of heart never won a fickle maiden because if you're faint of heart, you will bow and bend and slink away. When I hear the words of our Lord read this morning from St. Matthew's Gospel, I think about that quote because I hear him say this, the faint of heart never won a fickle generation. Isn't that what Jesus is supposed to be doing, is winning the world over for his Father's kingdom? Isn't that what we Christians are supposed to do, win the world for Christ? I'm convinced that we, though say that phrase, many don't really know what it means, but nevertheless, we know that we're supposed to be doing something of sharing the world to, with the, the love of Jesus Christ and showing the world, what it means to be brought into the kingdom and what grace looks like. We're supposed to be doing this. It's called evangelism. It's called justice. It's called inclusion. It's called love. It's called a lot of things. We're supposed to be doing it, yet our time is not unlike Jesus' time. The generations are fickle. Jesus says, you saw John the Baptist who was offering something of God to you, and you said, uh, we don't like it. He's got a demon. And Jesus says, and then I come and I'm offering the keys to the kingdom. I'm offering God here with you. And you look at me and you saw me have that glass of wine that one time. And so you call me a drunkard. You looked at me and you said, eh, I disagree with this politics. Not for me. There's no winning. There's no pleasing that generation. You can hear that word, the generations. Now, we do a lot of criti criticism of generations in our own day, don't we? It was really popular for a while to hate on millennials. Now they run the world, so it's no longer popular. At one point, you heard the millennials say, hey, boomer, and blah, 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 blah. I find all that to be really, really, really dull and boring and not very helpful. I can tell you that one of my life goals is to live into a certain age where I am not criticizing the younger generation. And that's wisdom. If you want to hear a sermon on that, talk to me later. That is actually straight up wisdom. There's no margin in throwing shade or criticizing or knocking the youth because they're different. It just isn't. 
It's a song that has been sung that is old as time. The world changes. And if you don't want to die, church, adapt. If you don't want to die, evolve. Oh, but there's ways of talking about generations in one congregational setting and see that there's a fickleness afoot. Huh. I like that. Fickleness afoot. In this very context, I've actually heard people of a senior generation criticize some youthful folks here for what they look like, for what they wear, for how they represent themselves, for how they comport themselves. And I've actually seen young people leave and not come back because they were hurt. They didn't feel like they had a home. I've also heard the young people here kind of... doing the young person thing, where they kind of come in with a cup of coffee and maybe being asked not to bring the coffee in the sanctuary. There's reasons, right? One of the reasons is because if we damage any of this stuff, it's, it's quite costly to fix. So, so there's, there's some thought about not having coffee, okay? But, ah, you hear this. Why? That's stupid. That's stupid. I don't care. That's stupid. Oh, that rule, that idea, that value, that's stupid. That's stupid, stupid, stupid. Why can't you laugh at the old people stuff? I mean, here's the thing about it. When you age, your prefrontal cortex shrinks. This is true, right? There's there's a lessening of it. So your executive function changes. We look for things that are comfortable. and, And that's why you see people who are extremely at the top of their game when they're working in their work life do really silly things later on in their years, and their kids can say, Dad, why are you doing that? Why are you on that ladder? And then the youth have no wisdom. And then how do you get wisdom? You can't just get it by asking for it. you got to go through it to get it. It's a real catch-22. And really what I'm left with is the, the, the sad state of affairs that Father Richard Rohr, the Franciscan spirituality writer, talks about our own day and time. We're not making elders anymore partly because we're focused on achievement in life and not focused on the gifts that come with wisdom, and we're not focused in our day and time on sharing that wisdom with the young. Now, anyway, there's a fickleness of foot everywhere you go, it seems like. I think a source of modern fickleness might be like what I like to call Chronic discontent. You ever met somebody who was chronically discontented? Like a sciatica pain. They just have it wherever they go. Have you ever been chronically discontented? Nothing quite measures up. If you were here last week, I showed you a book that I read last week about the psychology of complaining. And in that book, it shows a lot of psychological research and data that says the people who complain the most tend to be the people who are the most privileged. Which doesn't seem right, but let me put it this way. If you are impoverished and have nothing to eat, and someone hands you a mayonnaise and pickle sandwich, you probably aren't going to complain because you need it. But people of privilege, like me, like you, we can go to a nice restaurant and send it back because it's not good enough. Oh, it's easier to become more complaint-driven the more you have, the more not just 
resources you have, but the capital socially you have. And we live in a time of great privilege and excess in this country. You know, it's interesting to me that when we talk about our complaints and this privilege and all the rest, it almost brings us to a certain sort of baseline operating system for us where we can scarcely get beyond certain words like war. So much of our religious life is talked about in the sense of battle. There's a lot of warfare language or culture war. I got, we have to win this. We have to beat them. It always shocks me to hear Christians be so interested in using the language of war when our Lord so patently was against it. I mean, it's as clear as anything in Scripture. If you want to say Scripture says, Scripture says that. Or think about politics. Oh, how boring. Think about politics. How often is it that you see a political candidate talk about, we're going to win this fight? Fight with who? Why is it that the best that we can imagine in the 21st century with all of the moral writing that's been done for, I don't know, a millennium and a half, how about, how's the best that we can come up with language about war? and battle, and fighting, and otherizing people. It's the most simple baseline way that we can get a crew on our side, right? If we can have a common enemy, that's a powerful thing. Well, Christianity is not interested in a common enemy. Christianity is interested in a common world brought under the grace of God. Hmm. It's not very mature to speak this way. But I think it's complicated even further by the secular age that we're talking about living in so much. Charles Taylor, the eminent philosopher, wrote a book about this thick called A Secular Age. It's wonderful. It's proven to be true. And in it, he diagnoses how the secular age has come about. Now, one thing is this. The secular age does not mean an age where people don't believe in things anymore. The secular age is rather a place and a time when there's many more offerings for the prime important focus of your life or God or religion. In the secular age, we don't have a de-Christianization in this culture. We don't have a de-religionification in this culture. We don't have widespread atheism per se. We have a de-churchification because in a secular age, people choose for themselves what it is that they value. I'm going to follow Jesus by listening to a nice sermon on a podcast from a pastor in Southern California. I'll get my moral instruction from a TED Talk, and I'll do a little bit of yoga to feel connected to something. And then I get to go to brunch. I don't really need to go to church. I mean, I can do this anywhere I want. I don't have to go on Sunday. My son's got travel baseball anyway, and Lord knows he's going to make to the major leagues and buy me a big house one day. Not happening. Or, you know, there's even weirder ways of doing it. 
right? We just curate for ourselves. I like to go look at some art, and then I like to uh, try medical marijuana, makes me feel chill, makes me feel connected, and then I like to go out in the woods and have a nice long trip. There's thousands of ways people do it, because really what Charles Taylor says is we live in the age of authenticity. And the age of authenticity has been growing for a long time, but it was most started or most primed in the 1960s when we started focusing the way that we commodify the youth culture and we created the youth culture through consumable goods. They became people that we sold to. And in that world, in the age of authenticity, here's what it looks like. You do you, man. Follow your bliss. Don't, it doesn't matter. You don't need to be beholden to a family, a tribe, a community called a church, a creed that a church espouses. You don't need to be beholden to a religion or have an accountability group outside of yourselves or the people who look like you. You just do you. There's so many people in this world who don't get a chance to do that. There's so many people who've lived generations and, and millennia on this planet who never got to do them. Oh, yeah, by the way, just read Pew Research right now. People in the church are just doing themselves in droves. They're saying that most people don't want to go to church with people who vote differently than them because I, I want to make it look like the way I want to make it look. I've got to be authentic to myself at all costs. Wow, I just showed you the big Gordian knot of the world. Now here's what I want you to do. Wipe it all away. I want you to remove everything I said from the center of your mind, put it on the edges. I want to ask you for something simple. How about we try being what Jesus asked us to be? How about we go about winning a fickle generation the way Jesus has taught us to win a fickle generation? and hard generation. I think that if we are like Christ, we may know we may not win political contests, popularity contests. We may not sway the masses, but we may touch the wounds. And if we can touch the wounds of a broken soul, we may provide healing. Tomash Halik is one of my favorite writing theologians. And uh, he's from the Czech Republic. He became a priest and theologian in the underground church when it was illegal to do so there. He went through uh, the Velvet Revolution. And he writes a lot about our age of skepticism and disbelief and uncertainty. And in this book, Touch the Wounds, he plays with a favorite image of his of St. Thomas. Thomas, we call the doubter, the one who didn't believe in the resurrection, or they reads that way to us, until he sees Jesus, and Jesus invites him to touch his wounds. Remember that part of Scripture? Let me read to you this lengthy bit, because I think it is absolutely praiseworthy. Being a believer does not entail throwing off the burdens of agonizing questions forever. Sometimes it means taking upon oneself the cross of doubts, and following Jesus faithfully. The strength of faith consists not of unshakable conviction 
It's not about unshakable conviction, but of the capacity to cope with doubts and ambiguities, to bear the burden of mystery while maintaining faithfulness and hope. Yes, maybe that was Thomas's actual mission. The faith that came into being when he touched Jesus' side did not become an object to be possessed. Even now, faith does not cease to be a journey for him, that is Thomas. He must continue to bear the burden of his doubts and his temptations to skepticism. The certainty of faith comes only when he touches God while touching the wounds of the world. Only there does he encounter him. There he experiences once more in his encounter with the crucified Christ, such is his mission, to encounter Jesus over and over again through the wounds of the world. The world may be hard and it may be fickle, but church, let's not be too faint of heart not to touch the wounds. My aunt Susie passed about 10, 11 years ago. She used to be a great nurse, very lonely gal, she came over for Christmas time and didn't want to come inside very much because she chain smoked, and so she liked to be near her cigarettes. She always brought this young guy over who was one of her patients, who was a really special needs guy. She brought him in for dinner. And see, there's something I'm ashamed to admit about myself, and that is that I have an aversion to the way a lot of people eat. Uh, if I see food in your mouth while we're eating, I can't look at you. I will do everything I can to leave your presence if you're smacking your mouth. It makes me irate. I only tell you that because I'm being honest, and so I have to do a lot of sitting on it and measuring it and going, you know, you're being ridiculous, but it's really hard for me. And I think about that, just like how quickly I am to remove myself from a little discomfort. But here's my Aunt Susie who's feeding this young man, and he can't eat right, right. He can't eat in a way that is proper to my table. Food all over his face. She's got to take the spoon and she's got to clean his cheeks with it and feed him again, almost like you do a baby, but sometimes he would cough up the food. And I could hardly look up. And by God, how insulting was it for me on Christmas to be so made to feel so uncomfortable. Let us not be faint of heart not to touch the wounds. She touched his wounds and made him a person that was whole and dignified, whereas I wanted to run. In Nottingham, England, where I did my PhD, there's a group of my friends that were called street pastors, which sounds kind of strange, but it's really what they were. And so they wore flak jackets that said street pastor. Now, Nottingham is a campus town, and like a lot of campus towns, there's a lot of binge drinking in the bars, right? You've been there. You've seen it. None of you have done it. But you've seen it. And these people work with the police department. Anytime there was a near fight on the street, they would actually have a walkie and would talk to the police department and they would turn the cameras, the CCTV cameras to, to see and make sure there was nothing bad going on. They would come and intervene. What's more is when people would be overserved and coming out in drunken stupors, these people got them home. They 
They got them home safely. What a ministry. And when they were really so far gone, there was one of the churches that owned a pub. I'm not sure if that's what heaven looks like or not. But the church owned a pub. A place to gather, and when somebody who was broken indulged themselves because of their brokenness and needed a place, there is a room in the back with beds. And under the care of the community, they were cared for. If you've ever helped someone who is three sheets to the wind, it's not comfortable. Sometimes it's messy. The church, let's not be too faint of heart not to touch the wounds. If you touch the wounds, you may heal the wounds. I had a friend named John, died two weeks ago. John and Kathy were as right-wing conservative as it came. And I tell you that because they had a very strong sense of fiscal responsibility, both individually and governmentally. These are the kind of people who would talk about, quote, misquote scripture by saying things like, if you don't work, you don't eat. And I had nothing really wrong with, with John's point of views politically or anything, but we would simply engage in political ideas for fun argument. And I would always challenge him. I would say, now, you vote the way you want to vote. I'll vote the way I want to vote. I'm not telling you how I vote. I was like, my concern, John, is that you're being formed morally and spiritually more by talk radio than by church. You're in church for an hour. You read your Bible 15 minutes a day, but you listen to talk radio eight hours, 12 hours a day. So what's forming the imagination, right? So I was always concerned about that about him. You know what it turns out? I didn't need to be concerned about John and Kathy. Their whole life was in taking in strays. They had this business between two universities, and they, they always brought in people who couldn't get jobs anywhere else. Always. They had a whole cast of characters who, who really looked to them for guidance and help, and sometimes he, he hired people who couldn't get jobs because they were, they were felons. There was a whole crew of felons working for John, and... They were convinced by John that they needed Jesus. He was winning that generation. But the thing is, they couldn't come to our church because they were the kind of felon who couldn't be around children, you know what I mean? So some people at the church would drive to his business once a week, and they'd hold a little worship service right there in the office for all the employees. Talk about the hard work. Talk about work that sometimes disappoints you. Sometimes people blame you when you don't deserve to be blamed. Work where sometimes people take advantage of you. They didn't turn away. They weren't faint of heart. They touched the wounds. It made all the difference. Friends, you don't forget your gifts. You are a concrete, irreplaceable, unique, exciting person. You have gifts I don't have. Don't think of the church as a group of services for you to 
come and participate in and then rank later on Yelp. Don't think of the church as a group of professionals for you to take your professional problems to and then do this with. No, 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 no. You're the priesthood of all believers. Don't forget your gifts. Don't forget why God made you. Don't forget that God made you to touch the wounds and bring healing to a broken world. Don't forget that there's things that you can do that no one else in the world can do. And I hope you don't let it pass you by. I hope you're not too afraid. I hope you're not faint of heart. Because lest we forget, we have a Savior whose hands are emblazoned in that window. Turn around and look if you can see. And it faces the great Peachtree Street in Atlanta, this great historic corridor. And there's Jesus with his hands out like this. And what does it say is an invitation to this city? Come to me. All you who are weary, and I will give you rest. My oak is easy, and my burden is light. Talk about hands that touch the womb.